Acts 24. You guys have been enjoying our journey through Acts? Amen. Good. I hope that you've learned stuff. I've learned a ton just studying to, to, to teach you guys about Acts. I've learned a ton. And uh, I was showing someone the other night, they were sitting at my dining room table, and I showed them my Bible. And I don't know if you guys can't really see that far away. But you can see, I always take notes in my Bible. I, I like having a digital Bible, and I use a Bible digitally to study and, and to do deep word searches and studies. But guys, get a Bible that you can write in. I, I really encourage, I know it sounds cheesy, but write in your Bible. Because there's so much information that I've written as I've been studying through the book of Acts, I've been writing in the margins. And um, one of the most treasured possessions I have are two of my dad's Bibles from, you know, during his 30 plus years of ministry. I own two of his Bibles, and in the margin of his Bibles, it's all kinds of writing and notes and thoughts and prayers. And if my house catches on fire, that would be one of the first things that I go for and make sure that I have um, in, in my possession. So get a Bible, write in it, and then um, that way you're kind of layering and scaffolding you know, your, your understanding of the text and the different, different revelations you have of the text um, on top of each other year after year. And uh, I love that. I love being able to do that. And you know, as I teach through the book of Acts, you might be thinking, how does he remember all this stuff? I don't really remember anything. I'm just reading, but I have a bunch of notes written in my margin, and then I go to those notes, and I then talk about those notes. So I'm kind of cheating, you could say. <laughs> but let's talk, about, let's talk about Acts. Who wrote the book of Acts? Luke did, yeah. What else did Luke write? The Gospel of Luke, yeah. And we can look at the book of Acts as Luke part two, the sequel, right? Here's the sequel to the movement. And one of the main questions and themes that he's trying to answer in this book, this letter actually to uh, Theophilus, is what about the Gentiles? What do we do with the Gentiles? Do they have a place in the world to come? And if so, what do they, do to, what do they gotta do to get there? Another theme he's trying to address, and Luke is trying to kind of um, explain to Theophilus, is how did this movement spread so rapidly? How did it go from Jerusalem, this little ragtag group of Jewish believers, numbering about 120 in Acts chapter 2, to in the thousands in Rome, to where it would just completely sweep the city of Rome and the, and the Roman Empire? That's another thing that we could say from Jerusalem to Rome is another theme of this book. And for me, I love history. I have a, a bachelor's in history. I love ancient history, military history, religious history, um, the Judaism and, and, and Jewish history. This has all of those elements kind of woven together, and I love that. And I've been really just, I guess, geeking out over learning how to, how to teach this to you guys. How, about, how many years does this cover in our movement? You guys remember? 28 about 28 to 30 years in our movement. Yeah. And uh, one of the main characters, as it's kind of developed over time here, but who is this main character now of the book? Paul, also called Saul, right? Did he ever change his name from Saul to Paul? No, he didn't. He never, Jesus did not change his name. He, was always, he always had those two names. You can't find a single verse that says that his name changed. And why do I say that? Why is that so important? Because for years, for thousands of years now, Christian historians and theologians have been trying to separate Jewish Paul from Christian Paul. There was the Jewish Paul that was a Pharisee, and he was like persecuting the church and all this stuff. And then there's like good, you know, Bible-thumping Baptist Paul. Right? It's just not the case. Paul was a faithful Jew to the day that he died, all right? And did he have to relearn some things? Absolutely. Did he have to re-examine his faith a little bit? Absolutely, right? He accepted the Messiah that he was trying to snuff out. Absolutely, some, some radical things changed in his faith and his theology. But he says up until, you know, 
verse, uh, I'm sorry, chapter 28, he, he's professing Pharisee, but a Pharisee who is following the promised Messiah of Israel. All right, that brings us to chapter 24, and we've got four chapters left in this book. And now we find ourselves in the mid-50s, mid-50s AD. So we're looking at about 30 years, no, I'm sorry, 20 years after the death, burial, and resurrection of Yeshua, okay? 20 years have gone by now. And Paul finds himself in a bit of a predicament. Remember, he was going up to the temple to put these rumors to bed. Um, then he is, this riot happens. He gets grabbed by um, Claudius Lysias, the commander there in Jerusalem. He gets dragged into the barracks. He's tried and all this stuff, and there's a plot to try to kill Paul by the unbelieving Jews there in the Sanhedrin. And you have this battle that's happening, even amongst the Jewish populace, between the Sadducees and the Pharisees, and Paul's kind of caught in the middle of that. And there's a lot of corruption going on within the Jewish court as well, within the Sanhedrin. And remember we talked about a couple weeks back how the Romans are epitomizing and embodying justice better than the, the very Sanhedrin that was supposed to be the hallmark of justice. And that's, remember we talked about Luke is trying to draw that contrast between the Roman sense of justice and their, their quest for justice for Paul versus the Sanhedrin and their lack of care for justice. And we're going to see that play out even more here in chapter 28 in the mid-50s. And it says... After five days, the high priest, Ananias, or Hananiah was his Hebrew name, he came down with some elders and a lawyer named Tertullus, and they presented their case against Paul to the governor. Let's pause here and look at a map, because Jerusalem is the center of the Jewish universe right here. But where is Paul located in chapter 24? Where is he right now? He is in the Roman political capital of the Judean occupation in Caesarea, right here along the coast. All right, That's where the Roman headquarters were for the land of Judea. Though this is the spiritual capital of Israel, the Jewish capital of Israel, this is the Roman capital of Israel. Paul is imprisoned right there on the seashore in Caesarea. Say that five times. But the governor of Judea at the time, his name is Felix. So when it says that they came down to Caesarea, what direction are they traveling? They're traveling north and west. Why do you say they're going down to Caesarea? Because anytime in Jewish imagination, Jewish world, anytime you're going any direction away from Jerusalem, you're going down. Okay? Anytime you're going towards Jerusalem, you're going up. All right? And that's why we've seen over and over in the book of Acts going down away from Jerusalem. Okay? Verse 2 Saul was called, and Tertullus began to make the charges. Felix who was the governor here, the, the Roman appointed governor, he says, Felix, your excellency, it is because of you that we enjoy unbroken peace. And it is your foresight that has brought to this nation so many reforms in so many areas. Let's pause there and just observe for a moment that that is completely false. Felix's reign is marked with tons of corruption, insurrections, and riots. And they know that. But he's just laying it on thick, isn't he? It is with the utmost gratitude that we receive this. But in order not to take up too much of your time, I beg your indulgence to give us a brief hearing. Now, in ancient times, I don't know if this was the case here, but they used to use um, uh, ancient water clock clocks in court cases in, in the Rome Roman Empire, where they would tell the defense or the... Uh, the um, uh, 
the lawyers basically here, you have this much time, and they would put water in a clock, and it would drip out of that clock so as not to be too long-winded. But what we see going on here is um, he's using uh, an ancient rhetorical and uh, oral uh, uh, method of approaching a ruler. It's called, um, in, in Latin, it translates to seeking the kindness or seizing the kindness. Um, and this is a very classic uh, Cicero, the, the Roman orator, kind of laid this out as like the first thing you want to do as an orator is seize the kindness of the person that you're speaking to. But that's what we see Tertullus doing. Verse 5, he says, We have this man a pest, and he is an agitator among the Jews throughout the world, and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes, or in Hebrew, the Nazari. Now, what he's trying to do here, up until this point, this has been largely a religious dispute between Jewish law, between Torah law, and different factions of Judaism, and what they believe about Yeshua of Nazareth, and whether or not he is the Messiah. But what Tertullus is doing here is he's trying to shift gears and say, this is not a matter of just religious law, but rather this is a political thing. All right, This, is, this guy is an insurrectionist. He is committing crimes against Roman law. He's very smart in doing that because he's realizing that the Romans, they don't want anything to do with, with matters of religion and matters of Torah. They just, they, they're focused on, on Roman law. And if he can peg him as being an insurrectionist, then he can get him. And also it says that he is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. The sect of the Nazarenes. This is the first and the last time that we're going to see our movement called, in Hebrew, the Nozarene. Okay? If you go to Israel today and you say that you are a Christian, they're going to translate it in Hebrew as notri, notri, okay? Uh, to say Christian in Hebrew is notri. And uh, that comes from a couple different passages. Obviously, it's directly connected to the fact that Yeshua was from Netzeret, Netzeret, okay? So his followers are called the notzrim, the little Nazareth people, you could say, is how we could translate that. But where does that come from? If you go back, I'm going to show you guys a couple verses real quick. Go back to Isaiah 11, verse 1. Isaiah 11, 1. And we're going to talk about what a netzer is and why it's significant that we are called the Nazarenes or the Nozrim. Isaiah 11, 1. It says, But a branch will emerge from the stump of Jesse, and a netzer will grow from his roots. And the spirit of Adonai will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and power, the spirit of knowledge and fearing the Lord. And he will be inspired by fearing the Lord. He will not judge by what he's, his eyes see, but what he decide by what his ears hear. But you see there, a shoot, a netzer, will grow from his roots. And I have these really annoying trees in my backyard called Chinese privet. And sometimes I go out there and I'll take a chainsaw and chainsaw them down. And I think I'm all good and everything. Sometimes I even take Roundup and pour it on the stump to try to kill it. But this really annoying thing happens about four feet away from that stump that I've cut down, a little netzer will pop out of the ground. What is a netzer? It is like a little, a little shoot that'll come out away from the stump that I cut down where I thought, you know, this thing's dead. It's not going to It's not going to grow anymore. Um, it's good, you know, this little netzer will pop out. And that's what Isaiah is talking about, though the house of Jesse, the house of David, the Davidic 
kingly line of David, though it seems to be cut down, a little netzer will pop out. And it'll come from an obscure place that you don't predict. All right? It'll be like, whoa, there's a netzer. And so it's natural that when David's family, they leave Babylonian exile and they come back and resettle in the land of Israel, they choose a little place that's south and west of the Sea of Galilee, right here on our map. Where is it? Right there on our map. And they name that place Netzeret, which literally translates to the shoot town. The shoot town. Okay? Now, why is that significant? Well, go with me to Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2, and verse 23. Matthew 2, 23. Matthew 2:23 So Yeshua and his parents they just leave they just leave Egypt and they go to resettle in the land of Israel and it says uh, warned in a dream he withdrew to the Galilee and they settled in a town called Netzeret the shoot town Nazareth so that what had been spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled that he will be called a netzer. Wait, Yeshua will be called a netzer, a shoot? Yeah, where are they getting that from? Okay, one more verse. I want to take you back to in Isaiah chapter 60 so that you can understand this. Isaiah 60. Isaiah 60. Where is Matthew getting this idea from? Isaiah 60. In verse 21, Isaiah 60, 21. All your people will be righteous ones, and they will inherit the land forever. And they will be like the netzer I planted, my handiwork in which I take pride. So Matthew is doing this drosh, you could say. He's expounding upon the prophecies found in Isaiah that a netzer will come forth. It'll be a netzer that he planted. And that netzer will bring righteousness to all people. And so Yeshua, having brought, been brought up in Nazareth, Netzeret, uh, he, he embodies that and fulfills those prophecies. So naturally, his followers become called the Notzrim, the little shoots. Okay, Which is very fitting because it seems like in Acts chapter 2, our movement is hopeless. We're like cut off. There's no hope for our movement. We're not a very big, substantial political movement, religious movement. But then what happens? Growth happens, right? Exponential, rapid growth begins to happen. We become the Nutrim, which is interesting too because the, the root, it's similar to a Natsar. A Natsar is someone who stands on a wall of like a fortified city and they watch for invaders or they watch for the king to return. Okay? So we could be translated as the followers of the shoot, the netzer, from netzeret, but we could also be translated as we are like watchmen waiting for a king. You see that? So that's, that's we get called there. Now there's three names for our movement in the book of Acts. Anybody remember what they are? Three names for our movement. The way, which is used five times, the most of all of them. The Christians, and then this one, the Nazarenes or the Notzrim. So here we go, verse 6. He even tried to profane the temple, but we arrested him. It's not true, right? Those are false accusations. 
And then some manuscripts have 6b to 8a here. They're less reliable manuscripts of the book of Acts, but I'm going to read them. We wanted to try him under our own law, but Lysias, the commander, intervened, and he took him out of our hands by force and ordered his accusers to appear before you. Verse 8. By questioning this man yourself, you will be able to learn all about the things of which we are accusing him. The Jews also join in the accusation and allege that these were factual. Verse 10. When the governor motioned for Saul to speak, he replied, I know that you have been judge over this nation for a number of years. Paul is talking now, right? So I'm glad to make my defense. Notice he's not using flattery, is he? He's just speaking factual. As you can verify for yourself, it has not been more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem. And neither in the temple, nor in the synagogues, nor anywhere else in the city, did they find me arguing with anyone or collecting a crowd, nor can they give any proof of the things of which they are accusing me today. Verse 14. But this I do admit to you, that I worship the God of our fathers in accordance with the way. There's the other name for our movement, right? Which they call a sect. I continue to believe everything that accords with the law and everything written in the prophets. Do you do that? Do you believe everything written in the Torah and the prophets? Just like Paul said? Or do you um, maybe look at them as like fairy tales and fables and, and you know, just I, that's not, we should unhitch ourselves from those things. I say believe in them, right? Because 2 Timothy says that they're, they're profitable for doctrine and reproof and the training up in righteousness. Verse 15, and I continue to have a hope in God, which they too accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the unrighteous. Indeed, it is because of this that I make a point of always having a clear conscience in both the sight of God and of man. Paul is invoking here his, his pharisaical beliefs in the resurrection of the dead. He knows that these people, many of them, the Sadducees, are not going to buy it. And he's trying to split the, his accusers again here. But this is so important. Not only is he just trying to split them, he firmly believes that this is the foundation of everything that he believes in. This is the foundation of his faith, is the, the hope and the belief in the resurrection of the dead. Now, where does he get this from? Because some of you may be reading this for the first time. You're seeing that the, the righteous and the unrighteous will be resurrected. How many of you that was like, you've never seen that before? <laughs> where is he getting this from? Let me take you on a quick trip here. Let's go to Isaiah chapter 26, verse 19. Isaiah 26, 19. Isaiah 26, 19. We're going to Isaiah a lot today, aren't we? Isaiah 26, 19. It says, Your dead will live. My corpse will rise. Awake and sing, you who dwell in the dust. For your dew is like the morning dew. And the earth will bring the ghosts to life. Let's go to Daniel 12. Turn over to Daniel 12 with me. And you're like, wow, I'm glad I have a digital Bible and not a Bible that I can write in like Gabe recommended. <laughs> Daniel 12. Daniel 12. And let's look at verse 29. No, I'm sorry. Daniel 12, verse 1. When that time comes, Michael, the great prince, who champions your people, will stand up. 
And there will be a time of distress unparalleled between the time they became a nation and that moment. At that time, your people will be delivered. And everyone whose name is found written in the book, many of those sleeping in the dust of the earth will be awakened. Some to everlasting life, but then some to everlasting shame and abhorrence and contempt. You see what's developing there? Now, go with me to Revelation chapter 20. Revelation 20. Revelation 20. John is talking now, and he's been shown this revelation. Revelation 20 verse 11 says, Next I saw a great white throne, and the one sitting on it. Earth and heaven fled from his presence, and no, one, and no place was found for them. In verse 12, And I saw the dead, both great and small, standing in front of the throne. The books were open, and another book was open called the Book of Life. And the dead were judged from what was written in the books according to whether or not they prayed the sinner's prayer. No, what does it say? According to what they had done. The sea gave up the dead in it, and death and Sheol gave up the dead in them, and they were judged, each according to what they had done. Do you see both righteous and unrighteous being resurrected here? Go to John chapter 5, verse 28. John 5, 28. John 5, 28. John 5, 28. Don't be surprised at this, Yeshua is saying, because the time is coming when all who are in the grave will hear his voice and they will come out. Those who have done good to a resurrection of life and those who have done evil to a resurrection of judgment. And then lastly, I'm sorry, second to last, go to Romans chapter 2. And verse 5, Romans 2, 5. Romans 2, 5. But by your stubbornness, by your unrepentant heart, you are storing up sins. I'm sorry, storing up anger for yourself on the day of anger. When God's righteous judgment will be revealed. For he will pay back each one according to his deeds. To those who seek glory honor and immortality by perseverance and doing good. He will pay back eternal life. But to those who are self-seeking, who disobey the truth and obey evil, he will pay back wrath and anger. You see the, the theme that's developing there. The, the idea of the resurrection of the dead is so prevalent in the biblical narrative. And, and it's, I would say, one of the biggest and most important themes in the entirety of the Bible. And think about this for a second. We follow a risen Messiah, a resurrected Messiah, right? You guys believe that? Just a minute ago, we prayed in a language that is a resurrected language. What do I mean by that? The Hebrew language is the only language known to, known to linguists to have ever died out as a national language and then come back again and been resurrected as a national language. The nation of Israel, gone off the map for 2,000 years, resurrected, right? We are a movement that is trying to resurrect the movement of the first century sect known as the Way. 
You see us developing there? We're all about resurrection. And we are hoping for the resurrection of the dead. That is the hope that Paul says. And our faith is bound up in this hope. Go with me to one more verse before we go back to Acts 24. Go with me to 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15. I know I'm taking you all over the place, but I know you guys are up for a challenge. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 12. 1 Corinthians 15, 12. 1 Corinthians 15, 12. This is such an important chapter in understanding the resurrection. Paul's writing this letter to the believers in Corinth. He says, But if it has been proclaimed that the Messiah has been raised from the dead, how is it that some of you are saying there is no such thing as the resurrection of the dead? If there's no resurrection of the dead, then the Messiah has not been raised. And if the Messiah has not been raised, then what we have proclaimed is in vain. That's big, right? And if the Messiah, in vain, we're all wasting our time. And also your trust is in vain. Furthermore, we are shown up as false witnesses for God and having testified that, the, that God raised up the Messiah, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Messiah has not been raised either. And if the Messiah has not been raised, your trust, your faith, your religion, it's useless. And you are still in your sins. Also, if this is the case, those who died in union with Messiah are lost. If it is only for this life that we have put our hope in Messiah, we are more pitiable. Pit, uh, more, what is the word? Pitiful, thank you, than anyone. Wow, that is huge, right? That Paul is basically saying that our entire faith, it hinges on Messiah having been raised from the dead. That is massive. So here we go. Verse 26, Acts 24. Verse, verse uh, 16, Acts 24, 16. Indeed, it is because of this that I make my point of always having a clear conscience in the sight of both God and man. Verse 17. After an absence of several years, I came back to Jerusalem to bring a charitable gift to my nation and to offer sacrifices. There it is, right? We talked about that a couple weeks back, or actually one week back. What about sacrifices? And those sacrifices, remember, we would have talked, we talked about how that would have cost Paul about... $8,500 to $10,000 for him to pay for those sacrifices in the temple. Verse 18, it was in connection with the latter that they found me in the temple. I had been ceremonially purified. I was not with a crowd, and I was not causing disturbance, but some Jews from the province of Asia, they ought to be here before you to make a charge if they have anything against me. See, in Roman law, it's a big deal. If you're not there, at court day, if you're not there before the judge to back up the charges that you're bringing, the accusations you're bringing, those charges can fall on you in Roman law. It's a big deal. And Paul knows that. Paul's saying they need to be here. Verse 20, or else these men themselves say what crime they found me guilty of when I stood in front of the Sanhedrin. Other than this one thing, which I shouted out when I was standing among them, and I am on trial today because I believe in the resurrection of the dead. But Felix, who had rather detailed knowledge of the things concerning the way, put them off, saying, when Lysias the commander comes down, I will decide your case. Let's talk about Felix for just a moment. Felix, his name means happy. It wasn't his original name. He was likely a freed slave. 
We know from, from uh, history that he was a freed slave. And the Roman uh, historian Tacitus says that Felix uh, was like a, a master of cruelty and lust. And he exercised his power of king with the spirit of a slave. Picture that. And Felix, he, um, he sees this woman who is uh, of Jewish descent. She's 16 years old, and she's married to a king who reigns in a province of Syria. So she's like a queen in Syria. Her name is Drusilla. He sees this young woman, and he has a desire for her. He's already had two wives, and he wants a third. <laughs> he sees Drusilla, and he sends sorcerers over to her province, and through uh, manipulate, uh, manipulation and trickery and sorcery, he convinces Drusilla to come marry him and live in the land of Judea and, and live in, in, in um, Caesarea. So you see all this, um, this manipulation and the sorcery, but Drusilla has an interesting lineage of herself. She is um, she's known for her beauty, but she is also the granddaughter of Herod the Great. And you may remember him. He is the one that had all the babies killed in Bethlehem. So they have this like really ungodly union coming from like lots of manipulation and affairs and deviousness. And that's what Paul is standing in the midst of. Picture that for a minute. So when Lysias the commander comes down, I would decide your case. In verse 23, he ordered the captain to keep Saul in custody, but to let him have considerable liberty and to not prevent any of his friends from taking care of his needs. Verse 24, and after some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, there she is, right, who was Jewish. He sent for Paul and listened to him as he spoke about trusting in the Messiah, Yeshua. But when Paul began to discuss righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix became frightened. Rightly so, right? You see, what's going on here is a role reversal. Paul is on trial. But who is really on trial? Felix. Paul is speaking about righteousness, about self-control, and the coming judgment. Is Paul talking at all about how does he get out of this mess? How can I post bail? Anything like that? No, he's saying, you're up for judgment, bud. You and your wife. A good dialogue of these matters, righteousness, self-control, and judgment, amongst unrepentant sinners, should produce fear and trembling. And Paul is reminding him of who the real judge is, who the real governor is, isn't he? He's turning it on its head. And he said, for the time being, go away. I will send for you when I get another chance. And at the same time, he hoped that Paul would offer him a bribe. So he sent for him rather often and kept talking with him. Now, where is this bribe coming from? Well, if you back up to verse 17, it says that Paul brought a charitable gift to Jerusalem. Perhaps that's the bribe. Maybe he knows that he brought that gift into town. It would have been a sizable sum of money. Or maybe he knows and, and, and speculates that Paul is coming from a family of wealth and notoriety. Right? Uh, we don't know. But he's expecting this bribe, and he's ultimately not going to get it. In verse 27, after two years, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus. But because Felix wanted to grant the Jews a favor, he left Paul still a prisoner. Go to Matthew chapter 10, verse 18, real fast, fast with me. Matthew 10, 18. 
is what we see here is the fulfillment of one of the promises gave, given by Yeshua. Matthew 10, 18. Matthew 10, 18. Yeshua says, 20 years before this, let's go to verse 16. Pay attention, because I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. So be as prudent as snakes, but as harmless as doves. Be on guard, for there will be people who will hand you over to the local Sanhedrin. They will flog you in their synagogues. And on my account, you will be brought before governors and kings as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. But when they bring you to trial, don't worry about what you're to say or how you are to say it. When the time comes, you will be given what you should say. For it will not be you speaking, but the Spirit of your Heavenly Father speaking through you. See, Paul is fulfilling that promise by going before the governor. And he's speaking correction, he's speaking rebuke into Felix and Drusilla, because he knows that their marriage had been built on adultery, betrayal, lies, and sorcery. So Paul's not only teaching that their marriage and their union is ungodly and incongruent with the gospel, but that's, it's illegitimate. They are the illegitimate leaders of the, the land of Israel. And it's due for just, uh, judgment. Remember, John the Baptist had something similar, didn't he? When he talked to Herod and said, You're, you, you are in violation of the Torah by marrying her. What happened to, to John the Baptist? Lost his head. Lost his head. Yeah, what's going to happen to Paul? Spoiler alert. He's going to lose his head. You see, and I, I keep harking on this because it's so, so frequent. I see well-intentioned believers get drawn into this doctrine that if you just have enough faith, or if you just do the right things, or you pray enough, or you give enough, or sow enough seeds, that you're going to find prosperity, you're going to find blessing, you're going to find physical advancement in your realm of influence. But is that what's going on here? Paul, I mean, talk about a man of faith and steadfastness. He is, he's finding himself in chains. He's sitting in prison for two years, and he's not relenting. And ultimately, it's going to end to his death. In his death. So, some lessons I pulled from Acts twenty-four, and I want to hear from you guys in a bit what you have. When we are being threatened by the rulers of this world and this age, do this: pull a, a, a play from his book. Speak to them about righteousness. Speak to them about self-control, and speak to them about the coming judgment. It might cost you a lot to do that, but it'll bring a lot of glory to God and educate them on who the real judge is, right? You may have missed it, but there's actually two trials going on here, and Luke is making us aware of that. That Felix and Drusilla are on trial, even more so than Paul is on trial. And Paul is acting as the arbitrator and the, and the, 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 the um, lawyer in this trial, so to speak, on behalf of God, the, the, the prosecutor. Paul, Paul is seeing the kingdom aspect of this, isn't he? He's not being trapped in the, man, what do I got to do to get out of here? Or I hope I don't lose my retirement or my 401k. He's thinking about, how do I be a represent, uh, representative of the true judge in the situation? And then Felix is representative of many who are intrigued by the gospel, but recognize that surrender to it means the loss of power, status, and self-sovereignty. Whereas Paul represents the opposite, doesn't he? He's losing everything. But he's proclaiming the gospel. Living a life of integrity 
which I hope you do, does not completely shield us from being falsely accused. Be aware of that. Our response to these accusations, however, makes all the difference. And guys, you will be falsely accused. Some of you probably have been before. How you respond to those false accusations either brings glory to God or profanes His name. Even in this room right here, you will likely be falsely accused by someone else in this room right here. I have seen it. I have seen good reactions. I have seen bad reactions. If we can't figure that out within this realm right here, how can we even fathom going before governors and kings and politicians and reacting in a godly manner when we are falsely accused by them? If you are falsely accused in this room by someone else in this room, number one, self-control, righteousness. Pray about the situation. And most importantly, give them the benefit of the doubt. Their perception is their reality. All right? How you respond makes all the difference. According to 1 Corinthians 15, which we read earlier, our faith hangs on the promise of the resurrection and the resurrected Yeshua. Do you believe it? And can you defend it? Because if all of your faith, all of your faith, Paul says, hangs on that being true, I hope that you can defend that. There's a lot of people in this room who can read biblical Hebrew or Greek or explain this or defend that and, and debate this and that. And just like They can do great things in doing that. But maybe they can't hold a candle or flame to someone who is refuting the resurrection of the dead. Put your priorities back in alignment. Study the resurrection. I can share with you some great resources and some great apologists that defend the resurrection of the dead and they do a great job at it. Because your faith, everything, all of that hangs on Yeshua resurrected. The resurrection of the dead will be a universal and simultaneous event. It will involve universal judgment and then punishment or reward. Some of you, that's a, that's a revelation to you today. That both the righteous and the unrighteous will be resurrected at the same time and judged according to their what? Their works, their deeds. And James has said, you know, Show me your faith without works, I'll show you that your faith is dead, right? I will always say this, we are saved by grace. It is a free gift. You cannot earn your salvation. We are saved by grace through faith, but you're rewarded based on your works. I'll prove it to you through the Bible time and time again. Saved by grace, free gift. Rewarded based on your works. Where do you get these works from? God's Word. His commands. John 14, 15. If you love me, You'll do what? Keep my commands. Keep my commands. Yeah. Oh, I don't know about you, but I want to. I would rather get to that moment of judgment and God say to me, "You know what? Yeah, that thing that you did uh, all, the rest of your life there, you didn't. You didn't have to do that, right? It's okay though. It's, you didn't. You didn't have to do that." Then, I, then to hear Matthew seven, "Depart from me, I did not know you, you worker of lawlessness." I'd rather hear the former than the latter. You got me? 
I'd rather come home and my sons did a little bit too much on their chore list that day, more than what I expected them, than to come home and then fall in short and they wasted their time and my resources and then expect me to reward them. You got what I'm saying? Err on the side of obedience of God's word. Knowing that it's not earning you anything, that it's not earning your salvation, but it's because you love him. It's the highest form of obedience. So what did you guys learn from Acts 24, and what observations did you make? Xavier. Yeah, thank you for your, your feedback. That's really appreciated. You guys have a question or comment? Yeah, Miss Joanne, how are you? Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you. That means a lot. Oh, thank you for your kind words. Thank you. Um, yeah, no, I know you. Thank you. Thank you. That really does mean a lot more than you know. Thank you. Yeah, Miss Carol. Yeah. Yeah, so both the righteous and the unrighteous will be resurrected. And they'll each be judged according to their deeds. Thank, uh, thankfully, for all of humanity, I am not that judge. <laughs> he is, and he's a righteous judge. And how it will all play out, and who will go where, all, I, all I've got are some guesses. But I know that here and now. The Bible is consumed is so much more obsessed with the here and now and how we live our lives and living holy and set apart than it is what the afterlife looks like or what happens to us when we die. Um, so I trust his judgment, literally his judgment on that. And um, so I'm going to answer your question, I guess, with I'm sorry I can't completely unravel the mystery of how it's all going to work, but just live here and now trusting in his salvation and his grace and trusting in his judgment that is to come. And it's going to be a just one. And uh, 
I, I pray that it be soon in my days, but please say it. Um, I saw, Helen, did you have your hand up? Yes, go ahead, and we'll go to Karen. I hope the ugly, for my sake. <laughs> and then you judge according to the works that they have done in this life. Yeah. Um, is there one general resurrection, or is it? Yeah. Revelation yeah. Revelation 19 and 20 have two. You know, yeah. One for the righteous and one for the unrighteous. Mm -hmm. The righteous have been raised to the earth when the Christ returns. Yes. The, Exactly. Yep. Thank you for bringing that up. I think that might clear up some of your confusion, Carol, too, is there will be a, a, a Revelation 19 resurrection upon the, the second return of Messiah, and then a resurrection of everyone else, Revelation 20. So thank you for bringing that up. Actually, it helps clarify that. So thank you. Is that? Yep. Yep. According to my assessment and study of Scripture, that is right. Thank you for bringing that up. Uh, Carol. Uh, not Carol. Karen. Sorry. No, this seems, and this is universal even within uh, Maimonides' 13 principles of the faith uh, that he codified, a Jewish law and, and belief, that they believe in the resurrection, a universal resurrection of Jew and Gentile. Correct. Yep. <laughs> Don't know. It's not my job. Where's the line? Well, what, what is, all right, you were real good, you get this. Mm -hmm. Not so good, you, you get this. Yeah. What, uh, what would you guess is the range of reward? Don't know. And that's why I, I'm thankful I'm not the judge. Because my range would be different than his. Um, you know, someone came to me last week privately and asked the question, um, a young child dies in a car accident. That was not their fault. They, you know, they're a two-year-old. Um, you know, they never heard the gospel. What about them? And I think it's, it's moments like this that provide the opportunity for them to have a hope at redemption and a hope in the age to come. Um, but yeah, I don't know where there's, there seems to be this uh, uh, spectrum in the second resurrection of all humanity. But I don't know what that is. And um, I'm thankful that I'm not the one making those calls. Um, but I have to trust uh, that I'm living in accordance with his word. And I won't have to worry about that. I'll be caught up in the first resurrection, I guess you could say. So, sorry, I can't answer that question. It'd <laughs> be nice to know. So, uh, we'll go to Jeremy. Uh, did I see your hand up, Mom? Yeah. We'll go, to, go ahead. I'll come to you. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Is Bob your eyes for you? Does Bob have eyes for you? Yes. <laughs> See what I did there? Yeah. Uh, the shofar, yeah. The resurrection. Yeah. Yeah, and that would that would that would jive with Revelation nineteen and twenty. Mm -hmm. That the dead in Messiah will rise. Yeah. 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 You definitely have a list of those verses that you battled off about the 
Uh, do I happen to have a list of the verses I, I read off? Uh, just write, If you just want to take a picture of my Bible when you're done. If anyone wants to get a picture of my Bible, they're in there right now. Yeah, Bob. I think it's Revelation 10 that talks about about everybody. Revelation 10 talks about Yeshua saying on the sea and the land. Well, the sea represents uh, Gentiles and the land is Israel. Hmm. So you've got both Gentiles and Jews that are going to be uh, resurrected by Jesus. Interesting. I never heard that. Interesting. Yeah, Jason. Um, so this whole scenario with this talking about what you believe, so that kind of highlighted to me, well, all basically one of the main emissaries of the New Testament, you know, giving this, this message out. Yeah. So what happened when, at what point in history, like what was the event or confluence of events where that movement started, you know, because there's a clear separation between him and those who don't believe in Mm-hmm. Yeah. Are you asking when during the times of the New Testament did that dichotomy begin to happen? Or? Yeah, yeah. Well, we got to remember, first of all, that that's a supernatural, by design, by plan separation that's happening here. That Paul says that his, his own brethren have for a time been supernaturally blinded to the fact that Yeshua is their own Messiah. Just like Joseph became this whole other identity to his own brother where his brethren couldn't even recognize him. That was all by design. And I was talking with Xavier the other day. It's, no, was it you guys? No, I was talking to someone else. Sorry, Xavier. It was someone else. Um, they were talking about how, you know, the story of Judah and Joseph and Genesis, like 40 through the end of Genesis, we make that all about Joseph and how Joseph is the main character of that narrative. When we should flip it around, Judah should be the main character of that narrative. And the whole story of Joseph and Judah is a story of Judah coming to repentance before the brother he betrayed, which is very prophetic because when you look at the end times, Paul says that what will it be like when my own brethren come to a saving knowledge of Yeshua? It would be like life from the dead, when they fully repent and their eyes are open to his true identity. So there is a series, historically speaking, there's a series of events, and I taught about it years ago when I did a teaching called The History of the Sect Known as the Way. Um, I spent like five weeks or so teaching through that. There's a series of events that happened that actually drove a wedge between the sect known as the Way and all the other Jewish sects that even further divided them. Some of them were like intentional anti-Semitic things, and then other things were just, just supernatural, the destruction of the temple, the destruction of Jerusalem, um, and the decapitating of, of the Jewish faith and the Jewish world in 70. That was a big one. So I don't know if that answers your question. But. Well, I was thinking more of it because it's, it's, it's the separation from Yeah, yeah. A lot of that happens as a result of um, of a heretic who infiltrated into the early Christian movement. That is Marcion, and I don't know if you're familiar with Marcion, but he basically taught that there was a God of the Old Testament, and then there was a God of the New Testament, and that the God of the New Testament kind of triumphed over the God of the Old Testament, and that He is supreme now, 
and that the God of the New Testament is sort of the, the one that we're supposed to follow, and they, they're, at, they're at odds with one another, so to speak. And the ghost of Marcion, so to speak, still lives within Christian theology to a certain extent. We believe that Jesus came to kind of pacify his angry father. And uh, that the Old Testament, yeah, that's good. There's some, some stuff in there that we can kind of glean from. But really where it's at is just strictly the New Testament. Um, that's kind of the ghost of Marcion still lives, so to speak. Um, we've got to remember that in our movement for the first 200 plus years, so to speak, in that range, there was no codified part of our Bibles, nor did anyone own a, a, a Bible like this for a long time. But we didn't have this part of our Bible called the New Testament. And where they found their moral uh, compass, their, their injunctions for living a moral life and a righteous life was strictly in the Old Testament. And they may have had some letters of Paul and the Gospels floating through their assemblies, and they would have been read publicly. But that wasn't part of their Bible for a long time. So I don't know if that answers your question, but it's a yeah, there's a lot that goes into play with it. Some of it is man-made, but all of it is God-ordained. Um, he's like Joseph says, what God meant for evil, no, I'm sorry, what you meant for evil, God, God meant for good. Meaning we we will do things that try to, and, and he actually uses the Hebrew uh, verb chashav. God, and it's the idea of, of weaving, like a weaver is a chashaver. God has weaved this together for good. And that's what is happening in this situation. Yeah. You want to grab it? Say, yes, it is. Yes, it is. There's, there's a visitor. There's a skink there. He wants to learn about righteousness and self-control. Uh, Greg. Yeah. Yeah, I go through all of that. Right. I go through all, all that history and the, the history of the second as the way. But the best remedy for that, and we talked about this in, in um, John Wycliffe and the Gutenberg Press and all that stuff, how foundational that was and beginning to, to restore all things. The fact that we have this right here is the best remedy to all of that. Men for thousands of years have been dumping in pollutants into our faith and got it to a point and have monopolized access to this. And the lay people could not have access to this. For, for really the majority of the history of our movement, we were not allowed to have access to this. 
And now we all have access to this and the original languages, multiple translations, and we're all beginning to read it for ourselves, which is I say, I say, I tell you guys, get in this and study it and learn it for yourself because this is the best remedy to those pollutants being put into our faith. And I always say we're like, we're like archaeologists. That's our job, right? Is to go through and, and our faith is like an archaeological site. And we go in and people have for centuries been dumping stuff into it and synchronizing their faith with other faiths. And our job is to go through with a pickaxe or a paintbrush and figure out what is a relic of scripture and what is something that man has put in it I don't, I don't necessarily need or is, is counter-biblical. Um, and that's our job to a certain extent, is to go through and all, always be analyzing and auditing things of our faith. So, yeah, I know. Literacy is at an all-time high. Yeah. 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 Well, Daniel, Daniel says that in the last days that knowledge will increase, and men will go to and fro, and knowledge will increase. And I can get on my phone, and in like less than ten clicks, I can see the ancient Dead Sea Scrolls on my phone. <laughs> Think about that. I have tw I have around thirty times the computing ability of the first space shuttle on my phone in my pocket, which is unbelievable. Um, we'll take one more question, and then we got a break for lunch. So, Brian. Oh yeah. You were doing it for me. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. Good deal. All right. Well, thank you guys for your comments and questions. Really good interaction. I appreciate it. Let's close in prayer, and then we're going to do the blessing over the fruit and the and the juice. Abba Father, thank you for this time of study of your word and teaching and instruction. May we take what we've learned today and apply it, and be people who can defend the resurrection. People defend your word. And stand before governors and generals and kings and rulers and even when falsely accused be speaking words of self-control and righteousness and coming judgment into their lives. But do it in a way that honors you and, and, and uh, glorifies you. And I pray all this in the mighty and matchless name of Yeshua. Amen.